Good morning. It is good to worship and celebrate the person and the work of the Lord Jesus through song and communion. Very grateful. Very grateful. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. As we are close to the finish line, some of you are saying, praise the Lord, and some of you are saying, man, let's keep going. Let's do round two in Hebrews. I'm sort of saying both at the same time. I can't, I can't say publicly the first one. So, uh, But we are getting to the end of the book, Hebrews 13, 7 through 16. <clears throat> so I, I want to say some things initially here this morning that I think are just very common. Nod your head with me. If, if you're living in the same world with the same heart and same mind as I have, when I was thinking about change, I thought change can be very scary, can it? Very, very scary because obviously things can change for the better, but what's scary is change can be for the worse. People change for the worse. <laughs> We've changed at times for the worse. The person you marry is not who you thought you married. Anybody had that? that little, nobody ever experienced that before. That's all of us, right? That's all of us. We get married in six months, we're like, wow, I see a lot of cracks in my, uh, that's what Jenna thought, I see a lot of cracks in my man who was supposed to rescue me. Certainly circumstances can change. Our mortgage rates are changing, not for the better. Gas prices have changed. When kids become teenagers, they certainly change. Man, I'm glad I'm not a parent of a teenager anymore. And yes, churches, sadly enough, can change for the worse. The real fear of change causes us to be very afraid and to not trust the Lord. It is a great source of anxiety for many, if not most, of us. Not knowing exactly what will change, how it will change, and when it will change. There's a great line that I used in the book of Luke when I talked about the storm coming up and Jesus walking on the water, and that is we're, we're either entering a storm, we're in a storm, or we're exiting a storm. That is just normal life in this broken world. The problem is you and I, understandably so, we love stability, we love security, and we love assurance, and we love the comfort that all of those bring. And when we don't have those, there's a lot of places the scriptures speak of as broken cisterns, if you would, that we go to try to get security and assurance and stability. And the vast majority of those places are unhealthy for us. Anybody ever gone somewhere else? to try to find those, and it just didn't happen. But our text today is so beautiful because it tells us that we have an unchanging Savior, that God will not change, He does not change, and He will never change. And if you and I get this truth, if it becomes internalized and seared upon our hearts, there are at least three things that will happen that I think you will be interested and experiencing. One is it will stabilize our souls in a world of chaos. Secondly, 
it will melt our hearts toward the Lord in a way that will change us to look more like him. And thirdly, we will run towards him quickly, quickly, even in our very worst moments. Our text this morning says that God does not change and all the implications of that. As a quick reminder to chapter 13, it is a chapter of application in light of all the doctrinal statements about Jesus being superior. And last week I said they're coming us like a machine gun and here this morning we have more of that. So let me read verses 7 through 9a in the first point here. It says, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So as we look at verses 7 through 9a, the first part of 9, notice that verse 8 is inserted after 7 and before the rest of our text with no conjunction, no but, no therefore in it. And I'll just tell you, at first pass as I read it, I thought, what is that? That's very confusing. Think about it. You're saying, remember your leaders. And then you say, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And right in the middle of that, just it's like out of nowhere, like he for, the writer forgot where he was, and it somehow stuck. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see the potential confusion there? But what I've learned to do over the years is continue to study. And I want to show you how verse 7 is connected to verse 8. In some ways, our writer is saying, listen, listen to me. Those folk who led you, those leaders, and taught you the word of God and lived their lives right before you, right before your very eyes, they live with the same confidence that God would, in Christ would not leave you nor forsake you. The same Christ who upheld those leaders who you to remember and consider and imitate is the same Christ that upholds you. Yes, these leaders, at this point, those leaders are not dead. In verse 17, those, in verse 7, the leaders are dead. In verse 17, when it mentions leaders, it's ones who are still alive presently. But the same Jesus who gave them the strength and the grace that helped them finish strong and faithful to the end of their lives is the same Jesus that will help you. So you see how verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same today and forever, is connected to verse 7. And then let me show you how verse 8 is also connected to the verse right after in the rest of the text. It's connected to verse 9 like this. The same message of Christ that these leaders taught and proclaimed and preached are to be the same message that you teach. See, that's connected to verse 8. You must hold on and preach it today. The same word of God that they taught is the same message you are to teach. Listen to me. The same thing they believed about God and Christ is the same thing you are to believe and speak of. And so verse 8 is connected to verse 7 and verse 9. And in some ways, I wanted you to know that because I was so confused as I read this text. So in light of that, let's go back to verse 7. These leaders, as I said, are now dead. 
In verse 17, we'll deal with the ones who are still alive, but our writer says we are to do three things concerning them. The text says we are to remember them, we are to reflect upon their lives, and we are to imitate their lives. Now, these most say these leaders are the ones who initially established the church uh, to these uh, Jewish Christians. I think Hebrews 2.3 speaks to that when it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it is attested to us by those who heard. So the leaders that first brought the gospel together to this community of folks and then taught them in the faith, he says, remember them, which is a present tense verbs, recall often their lives and messages and the impact they had on you. It says reflect upon them, which another way to put it is consider their conduct, to observe carefully the way they lived and responded to all the scary change and pressures going around them. And then thirdly, imitate their lives. The idea here is to pattern your life uh, from a life right in front of you to look and see that's a pattern that I can follow. Now, as I read that and unpacked that remember, that reflect, and that imitate, what do you think came through my mind and heart? The long list, <laughs> the long list of people that God has put in my life that I was able to do that with. Now, most of those are still alive, uh, but Man, I, I can think, how in the world did they respond in that situation when I know without a doubt that I would respond totally opposite? And here's what that made me do. It made me call them, seek them out, ask for time with them, and I peppered them with questions. How are you doing that? I want to hear what, how the Lord is empowering them because their life is very attractive. And secondly, I'm, I don't want to use the word vomit. Can you say the vom word vomit in church? Okay, I just did, so I'm good. But I am just pouring out my heart about me and my struggles. It's called discipleship because our lives are to be a mantle of credibility to the message we preach. And let me put some clarity on that. Both in the good, our daily trust of Christ and all that life brings, supposed to be a model of credibility, but also when we fail miserably and how do we respond to that failure in repentance and humility. And I can tell you, I have learned more by watching men who I was watching sin, speak of their sin, confess their sin, and respond with broken hearts of humility, I thought, huh, that's different than me. That's different than what I would have done. That makes me want to follow them. Does that make sense? So it's not as we are some example. I mean, obviously, Paul said, what, follow me as I follow Christ. But we are an example both in the good and in the bad. And so I want to encourage you as a side note, and I put a little thing on the bottom of our notes, Christian biographies. I mentioned it, I think, last week or week before. But you can go to Desiring God, 
Org, then type in biographies in the search bar, and there you have video biographies. Folks, you can learn. So I can't tell you how good that will be for your soul. So the question for us is who will remember and reflect and imitate you? There's great stuff at stake there. And then verses 8 and 9, it says, In light of Jesus Christ being the same yesterday and today and forever, that he never changes, I want to introduce you into a theological word called immutable. Immutable is the word that theologians use to speak of God, that he does not change. He is one who is unable to change. Here's how Charles Spurgeon described this great characteristic of God. There is one stable rock amidst the changing billows of this sea of life, and hallelujah to him that hath no change. The satisfaction that the mariner feels when after being tossed about for many a day, he puts his foot upon the solid shore is the satisfaction of a Christian when amidst all the changes of this troublesome life now plants the foot of his faith upon such a text as, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then our author goes right into verse 9. Therefore, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. He's saying to us, if Jesus Christ never changes, then his word never changes, then you don't have to believe anything that's outside of his word. There is a threat in this church for the Hebrew Christians to be led away. We've been talking about through the whole book of Hebrews, have we not, that they are abandoning their faith alone in Christ and want to go back to Judaism, to not abandon their faith in Christ alone. And they were to abandon their faith, it would be because they believe something different that is not true about Christ called a strange teachings, he puts it. Something different than what Jesus has said is true, what is right and what is good. So our writer is sort of given this blatant, very loud, very obvious warning to every Christ followers. False teaching is a dangerous threat to our faithful endurance to the end. That's the warning he's given. And I can tell you, it takes just a few minutes on social media to see Christians today saying stuff that is strange and diverse teachings, and then people that I know that say they know Christ respond to it with an amen. Some of y'all are going to quit posting on social media now. The warning here is to stop being led or carried away. The picture the New Testament gives of this being led or carried away is one of a child or immaturity. Ephesians 4, Paul puts it this way. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. A person who is carried away by strange and diverse teachings is a person who is not grounded in the word of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews, and as we preached it, we've been saying, draw near. 
and you can't draw near without that book. The strange teachings are incompatible with the gospel of grace. Uh, let me give you some specific examples. Works righteousness is a strange and diverse teaching, but I can't tell you how many times people, whether it's folks here or just Christians that I know, when I ask them a simple question, or they've been around the church, if you died tonight and you stood before God and he asked, why should I let you into heaven? I can't tell you how many times the answer has been some kind of good works on their part has earned them heaven. That's a strange and a diverse teaching. Universalism is one that is rampant in our culture and always has been that all people actually go to live with Christ in eternity. That is a strange and diverse teaching. Then there's the prosperity gospel that God only promises me health and wealth. The only one who prospers from the prosperity gospel is the one who teaches it because he's the one that gets all the money. Churches today, I went through just to clarify this, many Churches who used not to do what I'm going to say are doing this openly today. They are affirming same-sex marriage as God's as a good thing from God. They are affirming abortion. They are affirming a divine feminine God and singing to him in worship. They are affirming transgenderism. They are worshiping and singing to Mother Earth. Those were all seen this week. On social media. Now there are sneaky ones as well, meaning it's ones that the gospel is, is, is true and right and good, but there's always something to add to it. And Paul dealt with that back in Galatians when the Jew, he founded the church, evangelized, discipled people for 18 months, and the Judaizers come in to the church at Galatians said everything Paul said was true and right and good about the gospel. He just didn't tell you all of it. So you got to add circumcision to get that next level of spirituality and really be saved in a good way. If you read Galatians 1, Paul condemned it twice. He used vivid language that if I used here, the elders might excuse me. He was not playing around because the gospel was at stake. In our modern culture, especially in Middle Tennessee, and I've said this a few times over the years, but it's good reminder. There are churches that say that you must be baptized by water in order to be saved. That is a strange and diverse teaching. It is an addition to the gospel. Paul would condemn it, and we would condemn it. Baptism is good and right and true, and we do baptisms here, but it is an outward sign of the inner reality of the salvation that you already have. It is a false gospel, and those who believe in a gospel plus something cannot impossibly be saved. It is incompatible with the gospel of grace. So it's a red flag when the gospel of grace is not enough. Our writer continues to unpack this gospel of grace in the next session, section as we look at feasting at the altar of grace. Look with me in 9b through 14. So encouraging. 
So verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Somebody say amen. amen. That's what I'm talking about. I want to stop right there and just go. We, we may do that. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar, meaning we Christians have an altar, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Obviously, the strange teachings in our context revolve around certain kind of foods. In some ways, the, the writer is saying uh, that uh, what you're tempted to go back to, what these Jewish Christians were thinking were that the gospel wasn't enough. They would get this extra strength for their souls and their hearts and their minds from these ceremonial foods. He says, no way. They were thinking that more than grace is needed to strengthen the heart. And the more part, folks, as I just mentioned in Galatians, is always the problem. Rarely do these folks want to get rid of faith altogether. They like the stability of that. They just want to make it faith plus something. So we ask the question, what is it you and I need to really strengthen our hearts? It is not something new and trendy. There is nothing new and trendy. When you see new and trendy, this new secret to your spiritual life, put an X on it quickly. There's no such thing. We fall for that often. Our hearts are strengthened by, our inner man is strengthened by the grace of God in Christ that comes to us through the word of God and through the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. The danger comes when we as Christ followers become unsatisfied or not satisfied with the gospel and person of Christ alone. Folks, there's no going beyond Christ. <laughs> there's nothing better. Our author's been telling us that. Our writer's been telling us that the whole book. There's nothing deeper because the gospel is not just enough for non-Christians, but it is enough for Christians too. It is the spiritual food of the living. It is living bread and living water. I get, and we've taught here, and we've equipped people here, the gospel is, the gospel of grace is not only to be shared with others, but we are to be passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, and allowing it to color all of life, including our very worst moments. Jerry Bridges, as I put in your notes, says, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. I think he's wrong there. Every single moment. <laughs> Once a day is not enough for me. 
Here's how Milt Vincent, in my absolute favorite devotional that I've read 30, 40 times, it helps me preach the gospel to myself. I can't encourage you to buy it enough. It's called The Gospel Primer by Milt Vincent. Here's what he says. He says, the gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. Say amen. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my own heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such attacks with daily rehearsings of the gospel to my soul. He continues with another thought. As long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, this, think about you, I will be captive to them, meaning the the more shame and hiding you're doing with your sin, the more you're actually going to do the sin. And will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. The devil is well aware of this fact. He knows that if I can keep, he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. The gospel, however, slays sin at its root point and thereby nullifies sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from its guilt and preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. If somebody asks you, who is your favorite preacher? Your answer is not me. I know you want to say that. <laughs> now, your answer should always be, I am. Because I'm the one that preaches the gospel to my soul more than anyone. Without me preaching to myself, I'm in trouble because then I'm listening to myself. And when I listen to myself, it is condemnation and shame but when I preach the gospel to myself, there is hope and life and redemption and recovery and renewal and God's mercies are new every morning. Oh, the strength of heart we receive when we feast at the table filled with the gospel of grace. I want to help us this morning just very practically, very practically equip you. What do you do when you sin? Like, what do you do? Do you just sweep it on the rug? Do you fall in despair as if you're somehow shocked? Do you just act like it didn't happen? I, 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 biblically, if you don't learn this, if I don't learn and practice this, I'm done. <clears throat> Here's what we do when we sin. When we sin, God convicts us. Has everybody experienced that? Yes. And the conviction goes, it doesn't go, you are so sorry. No, the conviction is what you did was wrong. It's not personal. That's how you know it's his spirit. Secondly, the Bible tells us very clearly to confess that sin. That word confession simply means to agree with God. God has let you know that you sinned, 
and now we agree with him that we have sinned. Here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Did you hear that? Like if you act like there's not a sin problem, you're lying to yourself. You've been deceived. So that's why we say all the time here, we want to normalize the struggle with sin without celebrating it. A person that acts like, no, I'm good. Like they want to tell their story and their testimony and like, I can't really think of anything. Uh-oh, <laughs> your story and testimony is God's faithfulness in you seeing and fighting your sin. Verse 9 continues, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we say that, let me be clear, you do not have to confess your sins in order to receive forgiveness. The forgiveness in Christ is already done. Past sins, present sins, future sins, the slate is wiped clean. Because, I mean, think about it. Some people actually think this. Oh, gosh, I'm about to die, and I've forgotten some sins to confess, so I'm going to go to hell. Ridiculous. Anti-gospel. We've already been forgiven. This confession, all it does is to renew our intimacy and deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus to actually experience the forgiveness that's already ours in Christ. There's a wall that's put up. My kids are my kids. If they've sinned against me, are they still my kids? Some of them. <laughs> Nothing can ever change that they are mine. What their confession to me does, or mine to them, is to renew the intimacy in our fellowship. Here's how, and then thirdly, we tell another person. James 4 says we confess our sins to one another so you can be whole and healed. Don't discount that. It is so crucial. And then four, we thank God for the forgiveness that's already ours in Christ. Here's how Luther puts it, and I'll put this quote in your notes he says, it's the supreme art of the devil that he can condemn me when I sin. Boy, is he good at that? If I can hold on to the gospel for believers, there it is, preach the gospels for yourself. I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside. Don't you love, I love that. Matter of fact, I want this side of the church to say kiss, and I'm going to say my, and y'all say backside. Ready? Y'all going to remember this quote. Ready? Yes. My. Come on. Let's tell, tell Monty we're quoting Spurgeon. <laughs> Even if I sinned, he says, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account of sin? No, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today forever. God has no wrath towards me. I am accepted and beloved son and daughter we are now reconciled for all eternity, folks. That is life-changing. Now in verses 10 through 14, our writer makes the exact case that I just talked about as he really unpacks the gospel from a Jew's perspective. Verse 10, he says, we have an altar. If we've been paying attention in the book of Hebrews, we know that the Old Testament altar and the tabernacle or temple is now 
a metaphor for or example of our altar, which is the cross. It's a historical place called Golgotha, where F.F. Bruce says the Christian's altar is the sacrifice of Christ and where Jesus Christ is always available to them because he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. It is a place where grace and mercy flows. So our writer, when he says we have an altar, it is the cross. But then he says our altar, the cross, which those who serve the tent have no place to eat. What is he saying? At the time of this writing, when this book was read, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. So every year on the Day of Atonement, sacrifices were made where animals were slaughtered and the blood of those animals was supposed to forgive the sins of the Jewish people. Remember that? The writer is saying here, those people cannot eat at our altar at the cross because they reject it. They deny it. They reject the person and work of Christ on our altar. And then verses 11 or 12. Our writer is describing for us the day of atonement commanded by God to Israel on an annual basis based on the sacrifices found in, if you want to look up later, Leviticus 17 and 18. And on that day, as a reminder, there was the bloods of one, blood of one bull and two goats were sacrificed. The priest, in some ways, would lay his hand on one of those goats. He would confess the sins of the Israel people, and he would send that goat out into the wilderness. And that goat was called what? The scapegoat. Yes, is a picture, if you would, of our sins being taken away from us. Then there was a second goat. He wasn't so lucky. I guess they flipped coins. This goat was killed in sacrifice, giving us a picture of propitiation, which is a theological word that means God's wrath toward us has been satisfied and appeased by the shedding of this blood. And after this gruesome procedure, on the Day of Atonement, the remains were taken outside the gate of the city, and they were burned completely. And this now signified for that year the complete removal of sin from inside the camp. And our writer, like he's been doing in all of Hebrews, he sees Jesus in that day of atonement. Look at verse 12. Jesus himself suffered outside the what? Gate. Outside the gates of Jerusalem. And in doing so, the writer is telling us he completely put an end to our sin and removed it once for all. He doesn't have to come back annually and check in and die and shed his blood again. That's glorious. And he now gives us the reason in verse 12. So that Jesus may now sanctify the people with his own blood. The day of atonement, our writer is saying, is fulfilled in Christ because he set us apart as his people for his glory. That word sanctified there is different than the word sanctification found in the epistles. The word sanctification found in the epistles is this progressive growth in spiritual maturity. Here, it's used to describe the purification of our sins from a holy God. It gives us access and worship to him. 
Just as the blood of bulls and goats were offered up on the annual day of atonement, Jesus was offered up once for all, and his shed blood paid for all the sins of those who would trust in it. Jesus, in some ways, becomes an outsider for outsiders. Jesus suffers on unholy ground outside the camp for those who are unholy, and now he welcomes us into his presence. Verse 13, summary says, therefore, let us go to him and take up our cross and follow him, suffer with him, stay faithful with him, endure with him. In verse 14, and live, here's what's going to help you, these two exhortations, live in light of eternity. So we have the leaders, Jesus and strange teachings. We have feasting at the altar of grace. And then we have worship and sacrifices. Look at verse 15 and 16 as we finish up. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So our writer, again, closes with two very practical commands or exhortations. The first is this continual offer-up of sacrifices of praise. It's not just when we feel like it. I had someone recently who was in tears, who was struggling, look at me, and I said, how are you doing? And he teared up and he said, God is so good, but things are very hard. And there it is. It is a command for all times and for all Christ followers. It's the whole part and parcel of our lives. It is the cultivation of our hearts that stand in all of God because of this gospel of grace. It is a sense of wonder of God's unchanging grace to us in Christ. It is a heart that is amazed by God's grace. It is a heart that maybe even sings amazing grace often. It is gripped by the truth and trusting in the beautiful, sovereign hand of God over our lives. Recently, I saw where a person this morning posted a picture on Twitter of his wife. I don't know him. Someone I knew retweeted it. And it said, yesterday, my beautiful wife went to be with the Lord Jesus. My heart is broke, but the Lord Jesus is so kind and merciful. Pray for me and my daughters as we grieve during this time. I said, man, I want to respond like that. Can't do it if you're not overwhelmed with the gospel to you. In light of that, if you can't do that, you can't do verse 16. Because good deeds just get tiring. If there's nothing driving them, if there's no fuel behind them, these good deeds he speaks of are all kind of practical ministry to others. When our hearts are bent Godward, they quickly and often turn outward. That's what happens. What happens inside of us, connecting upward with God, then goes horizontal. Literally, it says, do not neglect. It's implying that some are neglecting it. Paul put it this way in Colossians, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Man, I want you to take a minute this morning, and I really want you to focus. As someone plays, I'm sure Grant's coming. 
I want you to think about how you understand the gospel of grace. I want you, not Grant, thank you, Chris. Uh, I want you to think about how you preach to yourself. Do you listen to yourself or do you preach the gospel to yourself? How do you respond to try to strengthen your heart when you sin, not if you sin? Like, be honest and then ask the Lord to give you great, great strength to preach the gospel to yourself. Take a minute and ask the question, so what? thing of first importance. When we get the gospel wrong, we can't be saved, but also when we get the gospel wrong, we can't walk with you closely. <laughs> we can't grow and we can't change in your likeness. So help us as a church, individually and as a church, to get the gospel right. To be a church that preaches the gospel to our own hearts. When we sin, frees us up actually from that sin. Let us be a church that when someone comes to us to confess their sins to a brother and sister, that our response is we preach the gospel to them too. Oh Lord, you are you are gooder. That's not even a word, but you are gooder than anything and anybody at any time. And we rest in that we find joy in that. Pray you would protect us from the evil onslaught or the condemnations of our own heart. We love you and everyone said, Amen.